Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. I, I Maybe I'm overthinking it, but I feel like my voice sounds more sing-songy. Um, you tend to have like a sing-songy quality to your voice if like you're doing well. Doing well as in, like, like in showing in a good way, or like, doing well as in having a good day? I mean, like, as in, like, you're in a good mood. Oh, okay, okay, okay. How do you feel about tonight's movie? Apprehensive? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tonight's movie is The Brute Man from 1946, directed by Gene Yarbrough. I feel like Yarbrough has been a mainstay on the show for a while, Obviously, we will eventually get to the last Yarbrough film mm-hmm. that we will see, like the last horror film by him. We're sort of in a string of like, oh, this is the last horror film for X, you know? Yeah. Last week was Republic Pictures. Mm-hmm. So the thing about this week is on a technicality, you could make the argument that this is the last universal horror film of the 1940s, which is a title we gave to She-Wolf of London. Because that's the last one that they released. Right. This movie was produced entirely by Universal Studios, but released by PRC. And that's... Comedy Real Classics. (laughs) I mean, they might as well stand for that. (laughs) But uh, the story of how it goes from being a Universal film to being a PRC film is uh, one that I will unpack a little later in the intro here. Now, Universal Studios still exists today. Yes. So when we say it's the last Universal horror movie, we mean of like the classic 40s original batch of Universal monster movies, right? Well, they also become Universal International. Yes. Right? So that's technically a different company. Sure. But, like, we're going to continue seeing movies from an entity called Universal that has a globe for its logo in various permutations, like, in the future. This is the last horror movie we will be seeing from PRC, period. End of an era. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So, The Brute Man stars Rondo Hatton, and speaking of lasts, this is the last Rondo Hatton movie we will be seeing. Yeah. Um, And it is actually kind of a prequel to his previous movies as The Creeper. Well, that's weird. Because the last Creeper movie, they had a line where he survived. So I thought that this would be a sequel to that film. Well, I think we'll figure out where it lies in the chronology a little better when we watch it. But yes, he is reprising his role as The Creeper. uh, And so I thought... We should probably go over kind of the appearances of the Creeper so far, as well as talk a little bit more about Rondo Hatton himself. For sure. Um, Since this is the last Rondo Hatton movie, I'll give a bit of his bio again, though Mm -hmm. folks might already be familiar with it. He was born in 1894, and he worked as a journalist in Tampa, Florida. When he was 20 years old, World War I began, and he enlisted. While he was in the French trenches, he was exposed to mustard gas, so he was hospitalized and then later medically discharged. So he returned to being a journalist in Tampa. Hatton was also dealing with a 
acromegaly, mm -hmm. uh, which causes progressive growth and deformation of the head, hands, and feet. So there's early pictures of him, and he does not show any signs of the disease, but obviously because it's progressive, it gets more and more advanced, even in appearance, um, as uh, he ages. Yeah, he was like a handsome high school football star in his youth. Yeah. For Hatton, it also caused his vocal cords to change, and so he developed a deep and kind of rumbly voice. Mm -hmm. His large hands, Neanderthal-like face, and deep voice got him many parts in movies as more brutish characters. Yeah. His role as the Creeper came in the 1944 Sherlock Holmes picture, The Pearl of Death, as Hoxton Creeper. Universal tried him out again in 1945's The Jungle Captive as Moloch the Brute, and in 1946's The Spider-Woman Strikes Back as Mario the Monster Man. Yeah, you can see the trend here. Yeah, the writers weren't very creative in what they were calling him. As we kind of talk about more in our episode on The Spider-Woman Strikes Back, Universal was looking for a horror icon to kind of hang a new franchise on. So they revived Hatton as the Creeper in the 1946 horror House of Horrors. Mm -hmm. In the 1944 Pearl of Death, Sherlock Holmes movie, the Creeper, Rhonda Hatton, was a hired man known for strangling. He faces against Holmes at the end, um, and Holmes is losing, so he convinces the Creeper that his boss will betray him. So the Creeper turns on his boss and is distracted in that fight, and then Sherlock Holmes defeats the Creeper, and uh, I don't know the details of his end, but I assume he basically gets tossed off a bridge or something like that. Yeah. House of Horrors follows a down-on-his-luck sculptor who finds the Creeper and fishes him out of the river and begins manipulating him to kill the sculptor's enemies. I think the key thing to note here is that he goes into the drink in London and gets fished out of the river in Manhattan. So, yes. like, he, he traveled the whole Atlantic Ocean unconscious. <laughs> Again, in the climax of House of Horrors, our hero convinces the Creeper that the sculptor will turn on him, and so the Creeper kills the sculptor. That allows enough time for our hero to shoot the Creeper, uh, but he's okay. They're like, oh, he's alive, we'll get him to a hospital. He's fine. He'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Rondo Hatton himself was not fine. House of Horrors and its follow-up, today's movie, The Brute Man, were both filmed in the late 1945. Around Christmas of that year, Hatton suffered a series of heart attacks due to his acromegaly. His ill health continued, and on February 2nd, 1946, which is 74 years ago today of the day we are recording, he suffered a fatal heart attack. House of Horrors and The Brute Man were both released posthumously. So, he's not alive to see the release of this movie. Yeah. I don't know the film's reception, mm -hmm. but I can guess that it wasn't super, like, critically acclaimed or mm. anything. So given horror's decline and Universal's step away from the genre, it's doubtful that Hatton would have had much of a film career after this had he survived that last heart attack. Yeah. Um, most of his cult icon status comes much later through late night showings of his movies, as well as Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, you know, you brought up, you bring up the late night showings, like, because of 
his movies getting shown over and over again on late night TV as part of cheap uh, syndication packages. He did develop kind of an icon hood with like basically baby boomers who were of the type to stay up late and watch old crappy horror movies. (laughs) Um, And that has led to him getting referenced in like modern culture in various ways. The one that comes to mind immediately is the Rocketeer. Uh, Both the comic and the movie feature a character who like, is exactly designed to look like Rondo Hatton. Yeah, and um, I think there's like a series of awards called, or like named after him. Yeah. He has gotten some recognition of the work that he did, Mm -hmm. um, outside journalism, of course, but even if he had survived that last heart attack, he I don't think he would have lived to see it because it happened in like the eighties. Yeah, like I at think the earliest. I think even if he had lived to see these movies get released, um, you know, his story probably would have still been one of, you know, eventually dying of acromegaly, dying in obscurity, and being rediscovered much later. Right? Yeah, yeah. This film, The Brute Man, as Sarah mentioned, was shot very close to the end of Hatton's life. It is a prequel giving the origin of the creeper oh with elements taken from hatton's own life as well as taken from universal's version of hatton's life yeah so that's part of the reason why i mentioned the mustard gas incident Mm -hmm. in world war one because universal liked to say that rondo's appearance came from a direct result of that mustard gas, and that's not the case at all. No, yeah. So they like to, in the publicity for his movies, say that he was disfigured by the mustard gas. And I think part of that was maybe thinking that was like an easier thing for like the public to understand versus trying to explain what acromegaly was. Um, but also I think part of it is it makes for like kind of a heroic, tragic narrative where like he's a war hero who then like you know, was ruined by the war or whatever, right? It's also World War Two, and we're fighting the Germans again. Yeah, exactly. As much as, like, America is very focused on the battle in the Pacific with the Japanese, mm-hmm. like, you still have, like, propaganda against the Germans. For sure. So the intent with giving the Creeper an origin story here was to basically give him a sympathetic backstory that would then align him more with universal monsters like... Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman, who have that kind of element. Absolutely. Ben Pivar produced this film, and the rest of the crew of this movie is very much what we've seen lately from the Universal B unit. Uh, this is kind of all the same people we've been seeing making the Universal films since, like, the main franchises died off, I guess you could say. Uh, the writers here are George Bricker and M. Coates Webster, working from a story by Dwight V. Babcock. And, you know, these are the guys who wrote The Devil Bat, House of Dracula, Pearl of Death, Jungle Captive, House of Horrors, and She-Wolf of London. So, you know, this is the same team who wrote Rondo Hatton's earlier films, but they're also just the guys that Universal's been going to for these last few horror movies in general. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Gene Yarbrough is directing the film. He directed House of Horrors, also She-Wolf of London, and between those films and this, he also directed Cuban Pete, uh, the Desi Arnaz musical. (laughs) Okay, mixing Um, it up. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, that's one of the movies that was part of Desi Arnaz's kind of rise to popularity and stardom. Uh, 
It's most likely that people listening to this podcast will be familiar with it from the title song, and they're probably only familiar with the title song because The Mask sings it in the 1994 movie The Mask. The male lead uh, in the cast, that is other than Rondo Hatton, is Tom Neal, best known for oh. the 1945 film noir Detour. Yeah, that's a good movie. He's not a nice guy, though. Nope. We first saw him in Bowery at Midnight, and in our episode on that film, I go into detail on his biography. Uh, I won't hear, but suffice to say he was an ex-boxer who toiled away in B-movies his whole career and was a very unpleasant guy who ended up as a domestic abuser and murderer. Yep. Sometimes the horror isn't just in the movies. Jane Wiley is the female lead here, and we saw her in She-Wolf of London as Carol. Uh, This would be one of Jane Wiley's final film roles before she retired from acting when she got married. Also in the cast is Jane Addams, who played Nina, the hunchback, in House of Dracula, and would go on to play Vicki Vale in 1949's Batman and Robin. In a minor role is Janelle Johnson, an actress who never really got much beyond minor roles, but who married RKO leading man George Dolenz, and then whose first son is Mickey Dolenz of The Monkees. Okay, cool. And then in a very small role as a professor is John Hamilton, who is best known to audiences as Perry White in the 1950s Adventures of Superman television series. So the film was shot in two weeks in November of 1945, and Hatton's condition was deteriorating rapidly during the shoot as the acromegaly began to affect his brain due to the pressure being put on the brain by the tumors being caused by the hyperactive pituitary gland. Yeah, like I mentioned with acromegaly, like, it causes excessive growth. It's not just your hands getting bigger. Like Ben said, it's with tumors and things. Yeah, like, everything's getting bigger because... Your body's just pumping out growth hormones. Right, exactly. And the rest of your body isn't getting bigger proportionally, so as your head is getting bigger, it's actually putting pressure on everything inside your head, including your brain which meant that Hatton had trouble focusing on set. He would forget his lines. He would ignore the other actors in a scene and not seem to realize they were there or doing anything. And he became very easily confused about what was going on in a scene. Um, There's even a moment in the film where he says yes while shaking his head no. Okay. Uh, And as you mentioned, uh, Hatton would pass away soon after this, after a series of heart attacks. So one thing I was going to ask you about, but I think I have the answer, is um, I know how stressful filming can be, especially with a schedule like this where it's like two weeks Mm -hmm. to film a whole movie. I was going to ask your opinion if um, doing these movies and doing these creeper movies with the Universal contributed to his decline in health, but it sounds like it was more the progression of acromegaly itself. Yeah, I mean, it could be argued that the sort of long hours and stressful conditions maybe resulted in Hatton not taking care of himself as well as he 
could have, and maybe that you could argue then, like, maybe he could have stuck it out a few more years if he had taken it easier, as it were. But the fact of the matter is, by this point in the disease's progression, these movies were kind of his only source, source of, of income. income. Uh, because, you know, for one thing, no one was going to hire him, you know, to do any kind of, like, what would you say, like, customer or client-facing work. <laughs> um, but also the progression of the disease and the effects it had on his mind meant that he couldn't go back to being a journalist. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, his appearance would make being a journalist hard. Yeah, um, yeah, you, you you know, you can't really show up in, like, the press box and start asking, you know, questions of the senator when you look like Rondo Hatton. I think, if memory serves, um, he had been acting before Pearl of Death, but in very minor roles as just, like, Ugly man in background type yeah, of roles. Yeah, thug number two. Exactly. Um, but he had been doing that since, like, I want to say, like, the mid-30s-ish. Yeah, yeah. So um, he still had, like, quite a few years of journalism experience under his belt. But it's clear that, like, as the disease started and he was getting these roles, he made that transition into show business, basically. Yeah, and it's it's kind of, you know, similar to the argument about freak shows, yeah, right? Where it's like, are these exploitative and bad? And, you know, are they putting people in conditions that are not conducive to their health? Or, you know, are these the only sort of sources of income that, you know, these people can access and that allows them to kind of be themselves, right? And the answer is yes. Yeah, the answer is both. <laughs> so... It is often said that the reason Universal sold the film to PRC was to avoid bad publicity and claims of exploitation following Hatton's death. However, I don't buy that because they had no trouble releasing House of Horrors less than two months after Hatton's death. And if there was a film you would have been like concerned about, like, oh, is it too soon? Like, you think it would be that, right? Um, that you would have pushed that back or something. Yeah, I think I think Universal handed this off to PRC because she Wolf of London bombed. They're like cool, like horror is completely down the drain for us. We've also just been purchased by International and we're scrapping the B unit anyways. Yeah. Like it doesn't make any sense for us to further invest money and effort into releasing this. Um, but we might as well get something out of it so PRC you deal with this. Yeah, they didn't want to be operating at a loss. Um, but, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, what happened was most likely a result of the merger between Universal and International in July of 1946, because the new Universal International shuttered the B-movie department in order to focus on prestige pictures. This is why it's sold to PRC and not like monogram because the new Universal was controlled by British industrialist J. Arthur Rank, whose company Eagle Lion owned PRC, which of course only ever made B-movies. So if Universal has some extra B-movies lying around, that's who they're going to shuffle them off to, because that's the corporate relationship. Yeah. So the Brute Man was shifted there, with PRC buying the film from Universal at a cost of $125,000, which was the cost of the film negative. So they it's a very nominal kind of purchase because 
there's technically no corporate relationship really between Universal and PRC, so they can't just hand the movie off. There has to be a purchase, but they are actually at the top of the chain owned by the same dude, right? Yeah. So it's all very kind of nominal. Now, PRC released The Brute Man on October 1st, 1946. Starting October off with a horror movie. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the reason why it's getting released so far after it was shot, you know, so long after House of Horrors... Oh, yeah, nearly a year after it shot. Yeah, is largely because of, you know, okay, House of Horrors was in the pipeline first... And then Universal goes through this merger, and they have to divest themselves of this movie, get it over to PRC, then PRC has to now market it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? The film received uh, scathing reviews. Oh, no. It was, That's worse than just being panned. Yeah. Uh, it was criticized for poor writing, poor acting, and bad pacing. Rondo Hatton's performance was singled out as especially poor, and the film was criticized for exploiting his appearance and disease for shock value. Um, The general consensus of critics was like, oh, this guy shouldn't be an actor. He's just here because he looks like this. We kind of noticed that in House of Horrors. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not a trained actor. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, in some ways you could call this the final universal horror film of the 40s, but also you could call it PRC's final horror movie as well, uh, depending on which studio you consider to like slot this film under in your categorizations. The reason this is PRC's final horror movie has to do with sort of the fate of that company. As 1946 moved into 1947, Rank no longer saw the point of having like a separate B-movie division owned by Eagle Lion, so he folded PRC into Eagle Lion itself, which would then now produce American B-movies in addition to releasing Rank's British films in the U.S. So it's sort of like, you know, you are, you have a sub-label to your record label, and you're like, wait, why do we have this? And just start releasing things under the main label name, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's under Eagle Lion. It's not some sort of no, yeah, merging of the names. No, yeah. Okay. PRC is just done. Okay. Uh, so we're technically... Like, we're going to see some Eagle Lion B-horror movies in the future. So you could kind of argue, like, well, that's the continuation. But in terms of seeing movies with the PRC logo at the start, this is it. Mm-hmm. So The Brute Man was released on DVD by Image Entertainment in 1999. Uh, It's a pretty good release, but it is now definitely out of print. It was also featured in the seventh season of Mystery Science Theater 3000 in 1996. So if people know The Brute Man, it's most likely from that episode. And it has kind of made The Brute Man the most famous of the Rondo Hatton films. Mm -hmm. It is currently streaming on the Fandor streaming service uh so if you do want to check it out that's where you're gonna have to go well folks hopefully you can find a copy and watch along you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss the brute man from 1946 directed by gene yarbrough see you on the other side everybody
Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Brute Man from 1946, <laughs> directed by Gene Yarbrough. This movie doesn't deserve the fancy rolled R you put on it. It May is not a fancy movie, Ben. Maybe not, but despite its bad reputation, for my money, this is probably the best Creeper movie of the lot. Probably because it's actually about the Creeper? Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's it's not the best writing, but it's not the worst writing we've ever seen. Yeah, it's just kind of writing. Yeah. There were letters and words and sentences on a piece of paper that people then read aloud while pretending to be emoting the emotion that that sentence denoted. Mm. It's, uh, it's competent. It's there. It's fine. It does its job. Why don't you tell us what it's about? Sure. Well, it's about the creeper being on the loose. Again. Again. Uh, as the film begins, the creeper is leaving the murder scene of Professor Cushman. Walking through the dark streets, he arrives at a secondary location, the home of Joan Bemis. He tries to be like, Joan, it's me, but she doesn't recognize him and just starts screaming her head off. So... The creeper must kill her to stop her screaming. On the run again, with the cops closing in, the creeper takes refuge in a blind woman's apartment. He explains to her that he's running from some men who come to the door. Um, as the cops who come in, they don't say, hey, we're the cops. They just start asking questions. Where is he? Search the room, like, mm -hmm. even though they have no, like, legal reason to be searching her room. Well, at Actually, that point, they have me. probable cause. Yeah, that's true. Um, but they should identify themselves as police officers. Absolutely. Um, but in the meantime, the creeper escapes through the bedroom window. Before reaching his hideout at the docks, the creeper leaves a note at the grocer's, uh, which is just an order for some groceries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, guy's gotta eat. The next day... The meanest grocer you have ever met sends his delivery boy out with the groceries to the address on this note. Yeah, I think they're trying to go for, like, J. Jonah Jameson-style, like, irascible boss, but it literally comes off as, like, if you say the wrong thing about this guy, he will snap your neck. Like, yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. so very like, intense. Like, like, something called up his butt. Like, he needs to chill out. Yeah, he is too old to be that angry. The kid delivers the groceries, but he's super curious about who this person is. Who lives in, like, a shack under a wharf by the docks. <laughs> <laughs> and it, his curiosity costs him his life as the creeper strangles him for snooping around. Meanwhile, the mayor and police commissioner are putting pressure on the homicide department. That's when the police get a clue from the grocer calling in that his delivery boy has gone missing for three hours. The police track down the creeper's address, and in the hideout they find the kid's body and a clue to the creeper's identity as Hal Moffat. And this comes in the form of a newspaper clipping showing a photo from college with this Hal Moffat, as well as a Clifford Scott and Virginia Rogers. The police head to Cliff Scott's place. Turns out he and Virginia are now married, so easily they are in the same location. And the cops explain a theory that the creeper 
is Hal. And they're like, oh man, like, I can't believe it, but it would explain why two people from our past, Professor Cushman and our friend Joan, died recently by the hands of the Creeper. And Might so- also explain what the hell happened to Hal Moffat. <laughs> Uh, so they, they explain, they give um, some backstory to Hal. Turns out he was a star football player in college. And handsome. And handsome. In addition to all those things, he was always after Clifford's girl, Virginia, despite Joan being in love with him and just chasing after him. But because of Hal's anger issues, Cliff couldn't confront him about trying to steal Virginia. Well, Cliff would tutor Hal from time to time. So one day, he gave Hal the wrong answers in chemistry. Professor Cushman had Hal stay after school for an experiment for some extra credit. And Hal got so mad at being played by Cliff that he trashed the science lab, causing chemical burns on his body. Chemicals that could affect his glands and nerves. Cut to Hal in a hospital bed, um, covered up like he's the invisible man. Um, Joan... Cliff and Virginia are all there, like, really upset about what's happened, but he refuses to engage with them. Um, and then after he recovers from the hospital, he disappears. Always a great sign. Never something that means that that person's going to come back for an elaborate revenge, uh, like, 16 years later. Yeah. The cops think Hal, the creeper, killed the professor and Joan to try to hold them responsible for his accident and deformation, and therefore could be coming to Cliff and Virginia's place next. So the cops are posted around the house for protection. Meanwhile, to thank the blind woman for her help, uh, we now learn that the blind woman is named Helen, the creeper steals some jewelry for her by going into a pawn shop, trying to pay by, I'll gladly pay you... No, what is it? I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for this jewelry today. Yes, exactly. And the guy's like, that's not how we do business. And the creeper kills him. That's how the creeper does business. Yes. Uh, Anyway, so he steals some jewelry for her. And they get into a conversation about how she teaches piano to make a living. Um, She doesn't mind being blind. But the doctors did say that she could get her eyesight back, but it would take a very expensive operation, and she doesn't make that much on just teaching piano lessons. So, the creeper heads to Cliff and Virginia's house to extort them for that money. Yeah, it's it's a big house in a swanky neighborhood. Like, they are, they got the goods. Yeah, Cliff is doing very well for himself. Mm-hmm. During the confrontation... You can tell because he has a Howard Stark mustache. <laughs> During the confrontation, Cliff shoots the creeper, who then kills Cliff and escapes with Virginia's jewelry. The creeper gives the jewelry to Helen, but while she takes them to get appraised, the police are called because the jewelry was reported as stolen. Mm -hmm. The cops explain to Helen that Hal is the creeper, and she can't believe it. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. He was so kind to me. Yeah. I never thought the jaguars would eat my face. (laughs) Newspapers come out, as they frequently do in this movie, declaring that the blind girl has told all. Feeling betrayed, the creeper goes to Helen's apartment to kill her. But the cops are lying in wait, and the creeper is arrested. Next day, back at police headquarters, the cops 
come together to tell Helen that they've raised the money for her operation. She goes off being escorted by the younger cop, the lieutenant, uh, presumably to eventually fall in love and get married. The end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like, like I said, the writing is bad, but it's not the worst. It's serviceable. Like, it's not doing anything particularly new or interesting, but, like, it isn't making, like, absolutely insane leaps of logic either. Like, yeah. we're ne- you're never at some point in this movie going, like, wait, what? Like, nobody drives from New York to Montana in the course of an <laughs> afternoon or something? Um, yeah, it's, it's also still pretty paint-by-numbers. Yes. Like, you know exactly what's going to happen. You know, like, cool, now we'll cut to the police, and mm-hmm. here's another police montage with spinning newspapers. Like, it's pretty paint-by-numbers. I will say that the body count is impressively high. Yes. Like, the creeper at least actually does things compared to some horror movie villains of this period who... Don't. don't. And um, he also does them on his own accord. Right. I was shocked to see Tom Neal's character, Clifford, die, because ostensibly, you know, according to his position in the credits, he's the, like, male lead. And my expectation was that after the cops came to meet Cliff and Virginia to explain, like, hey, your old friend is actually a psychopath and out killing everybody from his past, you know, so... I thought we were going to get into a, like, oh gosh, well, we're responsible for what happened to him, so we should be the ones who bring him in. Let's go, Virginia, and, like, we're going to be the heroes now. And instead, like, they're just patsies. Like, they're, they're bait for the creeper, for the cops, and then despite them watching the house for this exact thing happening, <laughs> he does manage to get in, and then he kills Cliff and steals her jewelry, and, like, that's the last we ever see of Virginia. So, it's just a plan of funeral now. Right. So I was kind be a, of... Be a rich dowager. Right. So, I mean, the movie does take some chances. It's not totally toothless. Yeah, I, I think it also starts very strong because it starts with Cushman's murder. Like, mm-hmm. we don't really know that that's where he's coming from, but it's it's clear once you know the story. Um, and then we head straight to Joan being murdered right mm-hmm. after a dinner party and just him stalking the streets with the police after him. So it is quite a strong start. I felt that the middle meandered a little bit. Mm. Um, It wasn't so poorly paced that I was bored, but it just kind of meandered. And then I feel like it ends on a whimper because, like, the creeper's arrested, that's it. Well, I think the problem with the ending is, you know, they get him in Helen's apartment, and, like, you see that coming, like, that's obvious. But then they, like, kind of grab him and take him out of the room because he's under arrest, and then, like, that's the last we see of him, right? So there's no real, like, resolution or denouement to the Creeper's story. There's no reaction from him. And we instead focus on Helen and giving her a denouement. In some ways, that makes sense because, you know, the plan was probably to keep doing more Creeper movies after this. But the thing that makes this different from... Pearl of Death or House of Horrors or the other Universal movies Rondo Hatton's been in is that this one's actually focused on the Creeper. Like, we're with him most of the movie. He's pretty much our viewpoint character for most of the movie. Like, where he goes, the camera follows. So it's weird that he just kind of, like, 
drops off the scene at the end of the movie. Yeah, even if they had him yelling off screen as he's being taken away, like, I'll get you, Helen, for this. Fuck you, cops. Like, something to show that he's, like, actually still menacing. A shot of him, like, holding some bars in a prison cell that zooms out to reveal it's a picture in a newspaper that's something (laughs) like, you know, creeper sentenced to gas chamber or whatever. And then, like, okay, cool, we know what his fate is. But I think the thing about the sagging in the middle is this movie is guilty of the sort of B-movie, drag-things-out sin of showing everyone get from point A to point B, like giving you their whole trip walking to whatever place they're going to go to next. Yeah. It does have the advantage of at least those places having some really good, interesting exterior sets. Like, when he goes to Helen's, he has to walk up, he has to climb up this fire escape, and it's pretty torturous to watch Rondo Hatton try to climb this thing three times, but it is at the end of, like, a dingy alley and, like, a pretty good, like, urban city kind of back lot, and, like, it's just more interesting than, like, if we were just watching him, like, walk through a lobby, get on an elevator, walk down the hall, like, every single time. Yeah, I think it's clear, at least through the sets, Mm -hmm. that money was spent on this movie. Yeah. Not, like... (laughs) I I guess what I mean by that is that it's not PRC spending money on it, right? Right. If it was a PRC movie, these sets would not be as good. So it's, like, a higher quality PRC movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, the city streets look good. The house that Cliff and Virginia live in is a different layout than... Every two-story manor house we've seen in a horror movie for ten years. Yeah. Um, We do get a lot of stock footage of police cars careening around corners in the dark. We never see a car drive. We see cars, but if they're driving, it's stock footage. Yeah. But, like, there is also, like, we go on location. Because, like, Mm. the dock set where he has his little, like, hideout... Like, that's at a real dock. Or at least yeah. something that looks really close to Yeah, there's to one. real water. Like, yeah. you see water. Which, like, if if that's a set, like, that, that's It's a good set, yeah. Um, and even, like, going to Joan's place. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a full, like, exterior shot. Yeah. yeah, and the movie keeps itself moving, uh, which is nice. And I think, of all the Creeper movies, at least, it certainly looks the best. I think House of Horrors looked pretty good, too. But again, like, House of Horrors feels like the creeper is a, just a pawn in the story, whereas this actually is a creeper movie. Yeah, like, and that's the thing, is in all the previous creeper movies, he's been someone's henchman, right? He's like Jaws in the James Bond movies or something, right? He's yeah. just the big tough that gets sent out. And this is a movie actually about him. But, like, you know, the lighting's really good, almost across the board. Yeah. And there's some, like cool angles that the camera takes that it didn't have to like when he's climbing the fire escape one of the times we see it from like the top looking down as he climbs up and like just things that would have been harder to do than just sticking the camera on a tripod and pointing it right at it like house of horrors looks okay but i think house of horrors still looks like television to my eyes yeah this actually feels like a movie yeah and i guess it is impressive that you know, they still only took two weeks to shoot this. Yeah, exactly. Like, despite that, some effort seems to have been put in here, and it almost feels like, it feels like this was, the intent behind this was, like, this is the movie that's going to 
really pushed the Creeper series. Like, he's been a running character in these other unrelated movies, but, like, this is the movie that was going to turn the Creeper into a franchise, you know? Yeah. I think if Rondo Hatton hadn't died when he did, we probably would have gotten maybe at least one more Creeper movie before Universal decided to get out of the horror game. Maybe. Because they're making these so quick, and they made the decision to leave horror about halfway through 46. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it, yeah it's like, possible. They could have made, you know, another one in February of 46, and had it ready in the chamber, and maybe it would have been another PRC release, but I think if Hatton had lived, there would have been an, at least one more after this. As far as his acting in this, it to me, it wasn't better or worse than what we've seen in the past. Yeah, I mean... I was going to say I think it's probably his best performance, but that has more to do with it just being... More him. Yeah, he's actually in it a lot more, but on, like, an acting level, you're right. Like, it's just... He's just Rondo Hatton. Like, this is how he be, you yeah. know? He's not a professional, trained actor, so he's just going to say lines. If he was suffering, like, effects of tumors on his skull and getting confused... And things, then I think it's actually a fairly good performance if he was dealing with all of that. Yeah, he doesn't really betray that. Like, yeah. And, you know, there are people in this movie who are just as good, if not worse, than he is <laughs> in the cast. Like, Fair. That is very fair, actually. Like, Tom Neal is practically nothing in this movie. Like, he's just collecting a paycheck. You know, they're not really using him to do anything. And... Jan Wiley is downright bad as Virginia Rogers. Like, I actually thought she was okay as Carol in She-Wolf of London, but, like, she's bad here. Um, Peter Whitney, who plays Lieutenant Gates... Oh, yeah, is, the younger cop. He's, like, actively awful. Yep. Like, he's doing such a bad... Like, Virginia's doing a bad job acting, and you're like, well, I mean, it's a B-horror movie, whatever. Whitney as Gates is doing such a bad job that he's actually, like, harming the movie. Like, I just don't buy that this guy is a lieutenant in the Homicide Squad. This guy feels like he should be playing the snarky reporter who's butting his nose into things, you know? Yeah, and that would allow him to play a little little bit of comedic relief, mm-hmm. which I feel like might be where he's more comfortable because yeah. they kept trying to do comedic things with the cops. Well, what's weird is that I feel like on paper it's not supposed to be funny, but that's what he's bringing in his performance because, yeah. like, what he actually does on screen is, like, argue with the police captain, cover for the captain for the brass, go down to a murder scene, investigate a body, like, order a cordon of dudes to surround the area. Like, standard cop stuff. But, like, he has this attitude like he's, I don't know, like, supposed to be, like, the court jester of the police department. Yeah. Um, I actually really liked Donald McBride as Captain Donnelly. I um, agree. Yeah, he was enjoyable. He was fun. He had a personality and character. Um, that was beyond, like, girl, I'm so nice, yeah. Donovan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jane Adams as Helen. Um, it's about pretty much the same as how she was as Nina in House of Dracula. Like, it's pretty much the same performance, except now she's blind instead of a hunchback. But she still should have been billed above Tom Neal and Jan Wiley. Like, why is she billed third? Her character is more important. More important to the plot, and also just featured more. 
Exactly. Like, more screen time. You, you mentioned in the context setting how Universal wanted this to position the creeper as a bit of a sympathetic creature, similar to the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster. Right. And I can see how the Brute Man does try to incorporate that formula. Mm-hmm. I still feel like the Brute Man, the film itself, is not really positioning the Creeper as fully sympathetic. Because even as, like, football captain nearly winning the game on his own, he's still kind of an asshole. Right, like, they make a point of saying he had anger issues, which is, I think, an attempt to try and, like, link, like you know, who he was before and who he is now, right? To not try and have it be like, oh, the chemicals made him crazy or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, um, which, I mean, has been a trope in the past. Right. I think one of the problems with the Creeper being sympathetic, so I have to back up to kind of talk about this, but, like, I've often seen this movie written up as a prequel to the other Creeper movies. Yeah. I don't think it is. I think it's a sequel with a flashback origin story. I agree. Like, I think this is still coming after the other Creeper movies. Like, using all of the movies together, if I had to, like, reconstruct the Creeper's, like, um, curriculum vitae, as it were. <laughs> like his CV. Tell right. me what's on his resume. What's his work history? Yeah, like, I think, you know, he's this popular university football captain. He gets a origin story that's basically like a reverse Victor Von Doom. <laughs> um, like, if you're not familiar with Fantastic Four listeners, uh, Dr. Doom's origin is that he was at university with Reed Richards. He was doing an experiment. Reed pointed out that Dr. Doom's calculations, I mean, not yet Dr. Doom's calculations were wrong. And Doom he was can't... was just Mr. Doom. Right. Doom can't admit that he's wrong or, like, less than perfect. So he's like, fuck off, does the experiment anyway, and then it blows up in his face. And Literally. Yeah, and, and you know disfigures him, similar to the Creeper. So the difference here is that Cliff Scott doesn't point out that his numbers are wrong. Cliff Scott sabotages him and makes his numbers wrong, right? But regardless, he has this tragic accident. He goes to the hospital, they let him out after a couple weeks, and he disappears. Then, like, 13 years later, he shows up in Britain. So he's clearly done some, like... Wandering the world, <laughs> traveling Europe, trying to find himself. Doing some eat, pray, love traveling. Or for maybe himself. like some like Bruce Wayne, like <laughs> traveling the world, learning ninja shit. <laughs> Clearly not, because he's terrible at breaking into houses. Yeah. He starts killing people in England uh, because that's how he gets the name. Because the name, the creeper, is originally the Huxton Creeper, right? So that's where he first becomes notorious. He works for the bad guy. In Pearl of Death, he gets yeeted off a bridge by Sherlock Holmes. He swims the ocean. Right, swims across the Atlantic to New York. Gets in with a sculptor there, kills some people. And then it's like, cool, I'm back in the States. Now to go back to my hometown and murder all the people responsible for this. <laughs> the thing is, is I think the thing that prevents him from being fully sympathetic is it's been 16 years since this has happened. Like, if the story was... He gets out of the hospital and, like, you know, makes his way to his wharf hideout, takes off the bandages, sees he's hideous, like, Two-Face or the Joker or some shit, and then immediately goes killing people. Like, that's like, okay, you are very upset about this, and they screwed you over. Sixteen years later, it's like, dude, you have had some time to, like, for this to calm down. So the fact that you are, like, 
still kill like set on killing these people shows that like this is all premeditated stuff, right? This yeah. is all like planned behavior. And I think that takes some of that sympathy away cuz like it's not like he's accidentally killing anyone. Yeah. Whereas with the creature, like Frankenstein's creature, mm-hmm. Obviously, he does have, like, ill intent with some of his murders, but he begins killing by accident. Yeah, a lot of the Frankenstein monster's murders are like, oops, I didn't know I was strong. (laughs) Oops, Maria didn't know how to swim. Oh, well. Yeah. When I threw that guy against a tree, I didn't expect his back to break. Nobody gave me biology lessons. I'm, like, a year old. Um... Yeah, and, like, the wolfman, it's like, well, he's a werewolf, so when he's in werewolf form, he has, like, no control over what he does, yeah. right? and actually shows sympathy for the murders he does commit, whereas the creeper is like, you want me to pay? You for can't... something? Yeah, you can't wait? I was honestly surprised he didn't just stuff it in his pocket and leave. And leave, yeah, like... but he's like, well, maybe I'll try to be honest. Yeah, he's oh, like... Oh, this is $12 in 1946? I don't know how much that is in today money, but I'll, I'll pay you tomorrow. No? Fuck you! Yeah, exactly. Um, well, he has <laughs> anger issues, you know? Speaking of the Fantastic Four... <laughs> well, his thing with Helen is very much like The Thing and Alicia Masters. Yeah. Um, obviously, this came first, and I think the inspiration here is more Frankenstein's Monster and the Blind Hermit from Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. But the thing I did want to bring up is... um. Have we seen the blind girl falls in love with a monster trope yet in horror? Because it feels like such a ubiquitous trope that I'm like, I'm sure we must have, but I can't actually think of a real example before this. No, I think you're right that that trope in and of itself originates from blind hermit being friends with the creature, but I don't... The closest we've had has been... um, the hunchback falling in love with the wolf man, like I can cure mm-hmm. him or something like but that. But not specifically the blind girl thing. This feels like the first idea you would have. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like if you're like, okay, this movie actually has to revolve around the creeper, and yes, he's angry at a bunch of people, but we need him to be sympathetic, and that can also give the movie some love interest. It's like, oh, well, then she must be blind. Yeah. Right? Because the thing that's taken is the assumption, and kind of the thing that motivates the creeper's murders is that. Every time people see him, they're immediately afraid and start, like, screaming or running away. And, like, you know, obviously that takes a toll on your self-esteem. I mean, which, weirdly, in 2020 is, like, the hardest part of these movies to buy. Like, yeah, he looks foreboding or, like, he looks intimidating. But I don't know if he really looks, like, scream and run the first sight you see of him. Yeah, I feel like... Like, even the way that some people stop and stare Mm -hmm. at him. I don't think we would have such extreme reactions. I'm not saying someone's not going to stare or maybe try to, like, look at the corner of their eyes or something like that. But I don't think it's as extreme of a reaction. Yeah, like, he's just a big guy with, like, sort of a big face, basically. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's weird that, like... It's just, it's positioned as like, oh, he's so horrifying to look at. And it's like, is he 
though. Yeah, the way they react to him is similar to the way that people react to Frankenstein's monster. Right. Which you can believe because he's literally undead parts of people. Right, like... With bolts on his neck. Yeah. Rondo Hatton doesn't have those things. He doesn't have, like, a skull face like the Phantom of the Opera. And, and the thing is, is his actual, like, nature is pretty, like, good-natured. Like, he's just kind of a swelled guy who happens to be in a rough spot because he's, you know, too big for the world. And when the movies try to play him as this cold-blooded killer, it doesn't quite come across because Rondo Hatton can't act, right? And so they have to rely entirely on his appearance to make him menacing, and I just don't really buy it. Like, he's, yeah. he makes sense to cast him as, like, a thug. Like, if he's, if he's the, you know, henchman of a gangster or whatever, and he's the guy, the tough, who's going to come up and beat up the hero, I totally buy that. But trying to position him as if he's, like... A serial killer. Or, or even just, like, the idea that he's, like, a monster on the, like, same level as, like, you know, people look at Quasimodo or, like, Jason from the Friday the 13th movies when he's unmasked. Like, he's not anywhere in that category, you know? Yeah. The scenes with the homicide captain and the lieutenant with uh, them talking with, like, the commissioner and the mayor's secretary, that's basically, like, all of those scenes are just, like, a speed run of Homicide and The Wire. Like, you want to get... <laughs> if you want to know what those shows are like, just watch the cop scenes in this movie where the mayor yells at the commissioner who yells at the homicide squad captain who yells at the homicide lieutenant detective to fix the problem. Yeah. And then later, when they get yelled at again by the commissioner, the captain, like pulls some shit that's basically along the lines of, like, you can't fire me, so what are you gonna do? Like, kind of, like, <laughs> sassiness back at him. And, like, that's... Like, he's 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 the character of Rawls from The Wire. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it's Rawls and McNulty. Like, well, what are you doing? Thinking about serial killers and how the creeper, like, you know, has a pretty notable death count. Right. It makes me wonder, like, how people reacted to the idea of him as maybe a serial killer. It's 1946. Uh, we talked in our episode on The Leopard Man, episode 105, how that was the first horror movie to really show a serial killer, or go into the psychology, really, of a serial killer. Um, outside of horror, 1943 had Shadow of a Doubt. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that in a movie that's supposed to be giving backstory to the creeper or trying to make him more sympathetic or anything like that, um, he's still just, like, killing random people. Yeah, but, like... Like, he's killing for a purpose and then killing random people. Well, except, like, nobody he kills is truly random. Like, the thing is, is this movie still isn't willing to, like, grapple with the idea of a true serial killer in the sense of, like, someone who just kills as a compulsion. Like, he has a motive every time, right? It's yeah. like, Professor Cushman gave me the assignment. Uh, Joan was... Screaming. Was screaming and, and didn't believe me when I said I wouldn't hurt her and, like, didn't recognize me and clearly hates me, even though, like, she had a crush on me before. So I hate her, so I'm going to kill her. Um, this kid found my hideout and is snooping around. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera, right? I guess the closest is in House of Horrors when he just, like, kills that girl down the street. Yes, that movie implied that he had some kind of compulsion for killing, but yeah. this movie doesn't give him that yet, right? Yeah, that's interesting. 
Well, do you want to move on to ranking? Yeah. So, as I said at the top, like, I think this is the best Creeper movie. I liked it better than all the others. So, I found our highest rated Creeper movie, which is House of Horrors, 93. And I was like, okay, that's my floor. Right above that is Spanish Dracula, which a lot of hipsters like, uh, but we didn't. And then above that, there's like Man-Made Monster, Before I Hang. These are movies that are like, okay, but you know what I really want kind of category. Like, I'd rather be watching Wolfman than Man-Made Monster. And I'd rather be watching The Man Who Changed His Mind than Before I Hang. Rather be watching Dracula than Spanish Dracula. But above that is The Bat Whispers. Now, The Bat Whispers is maybe a case of I'd rather be watching The Bat. One thing I do remember a lot about The Bat Whispers is there was a lot of Roland West showing off as a director and doing, like, really cool things with the camera all throughout and kind of trying to, like, play with this widescreen format they were experimenting with and all of that. And then, like, above that is The Magician, which is, like, you know, a really good Paul Wagner movie that kind of sets up a lot of tropes of universal horror movies, you know, and then there's The Bat and Can You Mean It? And I was like, okay, these are all better than The Brute Man. So my range ended up being 90 to 93, um, either above Before I Hang, down to above House of Horrors. Okay. Where were you looking? So while I agree that this is the better Creeper movie, um, I actually started looking fairly low on the list compared to your range. Okay. So I started looking around The Monster Maker at 113. Okay. Because that also featured Alchemigli. Sure. Um, albeit very poorly. The Brute Man's better than that. Mm-hmm. And then I got to 110, which is sung at midnight. Right. And I was like, well, that is a, probably a better movie... Definitely better makeup. There is makeup in it. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. Um, but is it as much of a horror movie as The Brute Man? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of debating there. The highest I would go when I was looking at my range was The Face of Marble at 100. Ah. Which was batshit bonkers. Yeah. Um, so it's funny that like when you were first talking about how you reacted to this movie, that it wasn't just throwing everything at you. Right. Because The Face of Marble absolutely does that. Yeah. The Face of Marble, listeners, if you don't recall, is the movie about some scientists trying to bring people back from the dead, but they accidentally turn their dog into a ghost dog. A vampire zombie ghost dog, if yeah. I remember correctly. It, it's it's really weird. And, yeah, they just kept throwing more and more things at you. This movie, on the other hand, feels like there's so many genres kind of working in this movie together. Like, there's a crime movie in here. Like, you could tell this movie from the perspective of the police if you wanted to. There's, you know, a... Love story. A love story. There's a guy who's been disfigured trying to get revenge kind of story. But I think they're more cohesive than the million things going on in Face of Marble. Yeah, well, that's what I've kind of decided is, like, while... The Bootman is fairly paint by numbers, especially compared <laughs> to the face of marble. Yeah. I think it it forms a, a more cohesive picture than whatever the heck is going on in face of marble. So while this was my range, one hundred two around one thirteen ish, um, I think I agree with you and am willing to come up to your range. Yeah, I mean if the Bruteman is paint by numbers, face of marble is Jackson Pollock. 
So looking at your range of, what was it, 90 to 93? That's right. I think I'm willing to put this below the bat whispers, but above before I hang, for the reasons you kind of outlined of, like, well, I'd rather watch this than that. Right. Um, in the case of the bat whispers, because Roland West is trying out these new techniques and everything, it feels a, like it's trying to be more innovative than the Brute Man perhaps is. Yeah, the Brute Man is just doing a better job of being a B-movie than B-movies really have to, whereas, like, the Bat Whispers was really, like, trying to be something. Yeah. All right, well, then entering the list at number 90 is The Brute Man from 1946, directed by Gene Yarbrough. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any of our other rankings, you can submit through our Ask Box on Tumblr. You can send us an email directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show through your podcasting app of choice using our RSS feed. And if you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review if your podcasting service lets you do that. Uh, You can also just spread the word yourself. Um, Word of mouth is the best way for a podcast to grow its audience. Or... If you really want to help us out, you can head over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to exclusive bonus content. We're doing something special for patrons uh, very soon. We're coming up on our 100th week of being on Patreon. And so we're going to be doing a special Q&A uh, audio segment. Uh, that will be available to patrons of all levels. Uh, So if you want to get to hear that, you can uh, sign up if you aren't signed up already. Um, We are taking questions through any of the means to contact us that Sarah mentioned earlier, um, or directly on the Patreon page, but the cutoff for that is this Friday. February 8th is the specific date. Uh, So yeah, look for that on patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. And I also just want to do a quick... Thank you, shout out to some awesome patrons. Uh, Ty Stafford recently upgraded his pledge, as well as Matt Smith. Thank you both so much. We've really appreciated your support. You guys have been uh, some of our like longest ever patrons mm-hmm. um, listening since episode one. Like That's fantastic and amazing and super cool and very, very flattering. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much. So Ben, mm-hmm. what are we watching next week? Well, next week's movie, I think, is going to be interesting because we're headed back to Warner Brothers. Okay. And we haven't had, like, an actual horror movie out of Warner Brothers in a very long time. Yeah. Well, they've Um, been very focused on, like, film noir and war movies. (laughs) Yes. Um, And so this is going to be, I guess, the final Warner Brothers horror movie of the 1940s. But I think there was maybe only one other one, if not two other ones. The other part that's really interesting is who's directing. It's Robert Florey, the original director of Frankenstein, who was then replaced by James Whale, and who went on to direct Murders in the Rue Morgue. 
the failure of which kind of like killed his career uh, for a long time. So he is returning to the horror genre here with The Beast with Five Fingers. <laughs> okay. I think the beast is man. <laughs> but we'll find out next week, Creatures of the Night. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.